So first thing, I want to begin with a question, as I often do. Do you recognize this symbol? Of course, this is the Jesus fish. But what you don't know is this symbol is found in Ephesus in the first century, meaning during the lifetime of John, who wrote this gospel. So this symbol is actually one of the earliest symbols for Christians to recognize one another. Symbol is actually found throughout uh, the archaeological record in the ancient world. And so this would have, been, this would have marked gathering places. Uh, and as also they had this interesting greeting, where if you walked up to another person you think might be a Christian, you would take with your toe in the sand and draw half of the fish. If the other person drew the other half of the fish, you knew that they were a Christian. And if they didn't, they just thought you were playing in the sand. <laughs> so this symbol was actually something that united the church from the very beginning. And it was resurrected, all puns intended, in the 1960s and kind of became a, a pop culture symbol. But to the early church, this actually had much more significance. Have you ever seen this image? Everyone ever wonder what that looks like other than almost two college fraternities? <laughs> Uh, so these are five Greek letters. It's actually the word for fish in Greek, ichthus. And on the next slide, there's a breakdown of this. I know this is small. I'll send it out in the email. But this is interesting that the word for fish, they use each letter to signify part of the person or work of Christ. The first one in ichthus is Jesus, Jesus in Greek. Next, Christos, Christ. Next, Theos, God. Next, Huios. Son, and last, Soter, Savior. Each letter of the word fish being used to describe and uh, personify the person and work of Christ. And this was one of the earliest church symbols. Uh, there's all kinds of this in the archaeological record, but yet it is really hard to find high-quality pictures of this. And so the reason why I bring that up is because this text this morning actually mentions the word fish and the, the theme of fishing more than any other text in the Bible. And this fish symbol has been important since the beginning, and there's a reason for that. Because if you grew up in the ancient Near East, and especially in the time of Christ, fish and fishing, if you lived near water, was part of your everyday life, if it was not your everyday life. Especially in Judea, which has several lakes, but mainly the, the Sea of Galilee, where most of Jesus' ministry was, and most of his disciples were fishermen. So this symbolism of fish and, and fishermen is very important to them just culturally, but there's a lot that goes along with it um, theologically as well. I mean, some of Jesus' best-known miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, taking fish and multiplying them. It's also uh, a metaphor that, that he uses often. And so we're going to get into that metaphor a little bit more today. And if you don't understand what a metaphor is, I think it's important that, that we start there first. Okay, what is a metaphor and why do we use them? So what a metaphor is, is it's a way of comparing two things. So we take something that is more concrete, meaning something that we know. We know fishing. We know what a fish is. We know what a fishing pole is. We know what fishing nets are. We know what it means to pull a fish out of the water. That's something we can understand and they could especially understand in their culture. So you take something that's concrete and then you, and then you apply it to something that's more abstract. So the kingdom of God is very hard to explain. Evangelism, to someone who does not understand what that means, is very hard to explain. 
But if you speak to young fishermen, they get the idea of throwing a net in and pulling fish out. So this metaphor is used by Jesus um, and in the early church in spreading their, their, their teaching of fishing, of bringing something out of the water, bringing in a catch, and then celebrating with, with what you've brought in. And so Jesus is going to do that very same thing this morning. It's very similar to the metaphor that Jesus used in chapter 10 of sheep and shepherding. And we're going to get into more of that next week as well as Jesus begins to challenge John in his allegiance to him. And so as happens many times in the Gospel of John, you're going to get two layers. And so there's always a surface layer for what's going on. Here, John's going to tell you the events. But with John, there's always a deeper theological truth that he's trying to get us to get at. And it's very much like fishing. If you're a fisherman in those days or even in these days and you're sitting on the water, you have a fisherman's perspective of, of, of what's going on. You think the fish are over there, you think they're over here, but underneath the surface, there's way more going on than you can ever understand. And this is what John does in his gospel, where he uses the terms of surface imagery to give you a picture of what's going on underneath. So as we walk through this text, I'm going to be doing a lot of that. On the surface, here's what's going on. But theologically underneath, here's what foundation we, we have to rest on. So if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 20. So in expository preaching, we do go through verse by verse. And since Deshaun left off on verse 29, I'm going to start reading in verse 30. Uh, We're going to address that quickly. I'm actually going to spend more time on it in two weeks when we finish up the book. And then we're going to spend most of our time in John chapter 20 on uh, verses 1 through 14. John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other Two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you this morning completely incapable 
on our own. Like the disciples in our own effort, we fish and catch nothing. But it is only by the risen Christ, it is only by your power that there is any fruit to our labors. Lord, I pray as we get into your word this morning, that you quiet our minds and our hearts and our cell phones, that you would help us to rest in your word, that you would take out all the clutter that is in our minds and help us to focus on your plan for your people and what your word would have to teach us. Help us to follow you and be faithful to you. And help us not to look for the rewards of men, but look forward to our heavenly rewards when we will dine with you in glory. And as we labor here on earth, we do it unto your praise and unto your glory and unto your name. And it's in in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. So we begin at the end of chapter 20. Now John sticks this here, and it should be a reminder for us. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, uh, which are not written in this book. So obviously in three years of ministry, Jesus did some amazing things, and just some of them John keys in on. But why does John key in on what he does? John is very intentional. John, out of all the other gospel writers, tells us that what he writes, he writes with a purpose. But these are written so that his purpose in writing is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John is not giving you fluff. He's not giving you information. He's giving you words of life. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. This is John's entire purpose. He wants you to know who Christ is, and when you know who Christ is, that you may believe in him and have life in his name. That is why we're in the Gospel of John. We want you to know who Christ is. We want you to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you believe in Him, you will have life in His name. And there is no life outside of Him. And everything that John puts in this Gospel is on purpose. Because John walked with Jesus. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. Had this intimate relationship with Him. And he knew more than anyone. What is most important for everyone who reads this Gospel is that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. That He is the one who can commission these disciples. He is the one who brings in the lost sheep. He is the one who brings in the fish. And He is the one who prepares the feast for those who are faithful in their labors. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And again, we'll touch on this more in two weeks when we get to the purpose of the book in our last week in John. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 21. After these or after this, Jesus revealed himself. We don't know what after this means. It means after these events. Could have been the same night, could have been a few days later, but it's after this, Jesus reveals himself. Now, this word to make manifest means to take something that is not visible and to make it visible. Jesus, in his glorified state, and we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, there's something different about it. He's certainly a man. Because he's got, the, he, he's got scars, he speaks, they're speaking to a man, but yet there's something different because he can appear in a room and he can leave. They cannot recognize him and they can recognize him. So in his new glorified, resurrected body, there's something unique. There's something different about Jesus being able to reveal himself to people who could not see him without his revealing. 
and he chooses who he reveals himself to. So that's our first surface detail that Jesus here shows up and reveals himself to them. Jesus has the power to do that. But if you dig a little deeper, Jesus no longer has a physical body, but the same principle applies. Jesus reveals himself to who he desires to. I love what uh, John Christosom says about this. He's one of the early church fathers and great commentators, wrote on many passages of Scripture. He says this, He was to be recognized not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Not by human faculties, but by divine perceptions. His disciples are to walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus gives them divine eyes to see Him. He reveals Himself to them. Without Him revealing Himself to them, they cannot see Him. It's no different for us. So these disciples are going to have to walk by faith, not by sight, because we're going to see they don't recognize Jesus. There's also a lot of little funny details in this story, because they're going to have to fish by faith and not by sight as well. And so this is how Jesus reveals them, reveals Himself to them. And who is the them? John tells us, you've got the usual suspects here. You've got Simon Peter. Simon, his reputation precedes him. Thomas, called the twin. We looked at him last week, doubting Thomas. And then uh, Nathaniel, we saw him back in chapter 1. Uh, he's from Canaan, where, Cana, where Jesus did his, his first miracle. And then you've got the sons of Zebedee, uh, the best tag team in the Bible, the sons of thunder, uh, James and his, and his brother John, who wrote this, this gospel. Uh, I, I'm sad that that name's already taken. Josh and I have to come up with a, a better brother duo name. But uh, the sons of, of Zebedee. So John still, in bringing his brother into the conversation, does not reference himself by name, but credits their, their father. The sons of Zebedee. And then two others who don't get named. Want to know who they are? So do I. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, we, we don't know. John just doesn't include them. They're, they're role players in this, this whole story. And then so Simon, who, as he does, Simon Peter, verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, um, whoever's phone that is, it happened before. You should be able to find the silent button. Um, and so Simon Peter, it goes, goes fishing. And what is this for Simon? This is his job. And if, if you're a fisherman there, you... Fish because your father fished and your grandfather fished and you fish for generations. But as the fishermen that I know, fishing is also kind of their happy place. This is like when things are not going well, when everything's crazy in life, I'm going to disconnect, I'm going to leave my phone at, at home, and I'm going to go out in the water, just me, the boat, fishing pole, and hopefully catch some, some fish. So I think there's a little bit of, yeah, I'm going to go get back to work, but also I'm going to get back to what I know. I'm going to go out and just get everything behind me, kind of clear my head. I'm going fishing. And of course, you know, Peter being the influencer and the, and the leader that he is, he says this, and the other disciples say, well, we're going too. This is amazing to me, because this is a guy who just denied Jesus three times a day or two ago. Uh, no, before the resurrection, three or four days ago. Um, and for all the flaws, all the times he sticks his foot in his mouth, he is a leader. When he speaks, they follow. And he still has this characteristic within him. And it's such a good reminder for us that every leader is flawed. Peter's flaws are well known. But what's most important about a leader is who they follow. 
So I would much rather follow someone like Peter who stumbles often but loves the Lord wholeheartedly than to follow someone who has it all together and is wise in their own eyes. Yeah, amen. And so when they go out, of course, with all the fishermen knowledge that they have amongst them, they're, you know, they're this experienced team. What happens? They went out, they got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. These fishermen who go back to what they know failed miserably. On their own, they did not go fishing, they went casting because they brought nothing back. And every fisherman's nightmare is to be out all night and catch nothing. Now, this was a common practice to go out and fish at night. And um, there's a lot more to this that we can't get into culturally, but the next detail is important here. So they went out all night and they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. So they went out, they, they, they fished, they went back to what they knew, uh, and they didn't get anything at night. And as day breaks, so G- John gives us the detail that Jesus shows up in the day. There's also another spiritual truth beyond this. Jesus himself calls himself the bright morning star in Revelation 22. All throughout Scripture, we get the, the picture of a God who our, in our lives we go through plenty of darkness and plenty of nighttime, but he, he is a God whose mercies are new every morning, like Lamentations 3 says. Great is his faithfulness. Psalm 4, the psalmist talks about crying out to God at night and, and drowning yourself in your tears on your pillow. But then Psalm 5 says that you hear my voice in the morning. Jesus does not operate in the night. And the night seems like it could go on forever, but when the day breaks... He is standing there. The spiritual symbolism is, is thick here. And so, after this fruitless failure of a night, Jesus stands on the shore, and they did not know that it was Jesus. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important to look back to Luke chapter 5. It's important to look back to where Jesus started his ministry and where he met Peter for the first time. So if you have your Bibles, go one book to the left, Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. Now I want you to pay attention to the details here uh, because there's going to be some some differences and some similarities that we're going to draw attention to as we go out, as we go throughout this passage. So Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake at Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, same Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Start to sound familiar. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word... I will let down the nets. Very important detail. Good response, Peter. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. 
Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is Jesus' first meeting with the disciples. And now we fast forward to his last meeting with disciples. Notice any similarities? It begins and ends with this miraculous fishing hall, but there's some differences we're going to get to in a little bit later. So he begins with the promise, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And now we get the fulfillment, his commissioning of them to be fishers of men. Peter, uh, James, and John, these partners in fishermen, fishing, are going to be partners in the gospel. So let's pick back up in John chapter 21, and now we're in verse 5. So Jesus is standing on shore. They do not recognize him. And Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? I love how often Jesus asks questions he knows the answer to for their benefit. Just rubbing it in. Children, do you have any fish? How's that night of fishing on your own going for you? They answered him, no. Just like he did earlier on in Luke 5, he says to them, cast the the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And I just put my mind, myself into the disciples' position. Like, we've been here all night. You don't think we tried the right side after the left side didn't work? But Jesus is making a point here. And so there's also something that we don't fully uh, understand, is that this is actually was and is a common practice. So in these, these seas uh, in the, the uh, Judean area, the water is still very clear. Even then it was, they don't have all the pollution that, that, that we do. But it was not common for some, or it wasn't uncommon for someone with a vantage point to stand on the shore and point out to the fishermen, hey, I can see a school of fish. If you, if you row this way a little bit, if you put your nets over there, I can see them. Anyone who's ever been fishing in crystal clear water, there's, you can see some while you're in the boat. But once you stand on the dock or you stand up on the shoreways, you can see these schools of fish begin to move. And so this was not out of the ordinary. And so... Um, he tells them to do this, and they, they follow it, still in verse 6 here. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And so they listen to this person who has a vantage point. So here's our surface detail. Jesus tells them where to put the net, and they pull in fish. But underneath that, there's some things that can't be seen when you're tired and they're right in front of you, like your car keys or the remote or your glasses, or whatever. So this great spiritual parallel also comes in here. That the risen Lord initiates conversation with them. He directs them from His vantage point. The Word of the Lord sees more than their eyes do. It gives clarity. And there is clarity from His vantage point. And when you listen to the Word of the Lord, there is reward. So I want to ask you this morning, Do we listen to the word of the Lord? Or are we so consumed with our fruitless night of failure and what's right in front of us that we don't listen to the wisdom of God's word? Jesus is the word made flesh. When he speaks, we should listen. Because when they listened, they were rewarded. And so I just think about this in our Christian life. How often do we struggle? You know, how often are we discouraged by our failures in the darkness of this life? that we feel like such failures in our own strength. But when we apply 
the simple words of Christ, there is, there is fruit and there is reward in our lives. It says, so rich for us. And then I love this here. So they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. It was such a big haul. They were fruitless all night. And now they receive their reward, but they only receive their reward in the morning, according to the word of God. Jesus told them earlier in chapter 15, without me, you can do nothing. And right here, he just proved it to them. And they did nothing on their own. How often do we need this reminder? In our own efforts, we could toil away, even as something that we do better than anything else. Without the Word of God, without Christ directing us, there is no fruit. There is no reward. And so immediately when this happens, they think this has to be, this cannot be a coincidence. There's too many similarities here. So as we see so often, John and Peter are in the boat, and John and Peter have had a crazy couple of days. But John, as he always does, John is very perceptive. John picks up on it. Verse 7. Then that disciple whom Jesus loved said, said to Peter, It is the Lord. As always, John gets it. And then Peter gets in it. So, so, so John puts all this together, and then Peter, as he does, and this is such a strange detail. Uh, it reads awkwardly in the English, and it's even more awkward in the Greek. But the sense of, of this is, so we've talked about this before. They have different layers of clothing. They have an undergarment and an outer garment. And it seems like the guys were out at night. Uh, the, the King James says he stripped naked. He was not, they were not fishing naked. Um, but in, in, a, in a sense, socially speaking, you would have been naked because you kind of had your, your undershirt and your boxers on. Um, and, and so Peter makes himself presentable, puts his outer garment on, like, all right, now I'm going to get dressed again and then jump in the water. This, this, is, this is Peter. Um, I find this hilarious. But, um, but what I love about that is you appreciate his devotion to the Lord. John says, it is the Lord, and sits put. Peter hears, it is the Lord, and jumps in. As silly as Peter can be sometimes, you've got to love how devoted he is to the Lord. Because he's a fisherman. This is his livelihood. But he does not wait for one instant to leave the biggest catch of his life behind and swim to shore. Now, here's where my twisted sense of humor finds this even more intriguing. Look at verse 9. The other disciples came in the boat. Now, I think John's got a great sense of humor. Because John says, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off land, but about a hundred yards off. The others were more practical. So they were like, it's a hundred yards. The shore's right there. We might as well bring all this fish that we just caught and now we're one man short. Thanks, Peter. And, and so, in my mind, I'm picturing them rowing a boat full of fish, and Peter bogged down by all his clothes, and them rowing past him. And here he is just struggling on his, on his way to shore. I don't know if that's, that, that's what happened, but it would be so typical of, of John and, and Peter. Um, and... I love that John includes these details. You get these little, little nuances, and I think John and Peter truly love each other. But there's, there's some brotherly competition going on here. We're just 100 yards away, Peter. Really? So when they got to the land, verse 9, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. This is amazing. Because there's no indication that Jesus had anything else with him. 
He stands on the shore. He tells them where to get fish. He asks them if they have fish, presumably because do you have anything to eat? And by the time they row 100 yards, it's not that far, he's already got a fire with coals, he's already got bread, and he's got fish. He's got breakfast for them on the beach. And then what we see on the surface is that Jesus provides for their physical needs. He knows that these tired fishermen have worn themselves out in their own strength, and he makes breakfast for them. But under the surface... He again provides what they could not, just like the cross. In their own effort, they could do nothing. In all their toil, in all their goodness, in all their experience, what they bring to the table is nothing without Christ. He again provides what these sinful, flawed humans could not. And He reminds them that in my strength, their is great success. There is great reward and there is great blessing. And now, because I went to the cross for you, because I have finished everything that is required for your salvation, now you will see fruit in your labor. Now you get to dine with me. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that before the resurrection, he calls them friends. After, he calls them brothers. Now they're going to eat as brothers on the beach. The risen Lord, the resurrected Lord, has now made a meal for them. And then there's another detail here. And if you guys think that Jesus is always straight-laced, sometimes the English takes away the thrust of his words. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Now, in the Greek, the emphasis is on the now. Bring some of the fish which you now caught. He's telling them, Bring what you caught just now, but remember, you didn't have it before I got here. The emphasis is on the now. Hey, you fishermen, bring what you caught that I put in your nets. What you contribute still comes from me. There's an emphasis there that is just amazing and and humbling for these these fishermen to see. And it's instructive, but it's also ironic, and it's also significant for them that you worked all night in your strength. But now, you've got fish, and now, you can contribute it. And if we take this a little deeper, this is the explanation of gospel ministry. This is what it is to labor in the gospel, to labor with Christ. It gives us a a preview of the work that they were going to do. Because even in their effort, it seems like they did it. They really cast the net. They really caught the fish. They really dragged it to shore. But who put the fish in the net? And this is this tension we find ourselves in because we know that our God is sovereign and we can do nothing without Him, yet He uses our efforts. And they are really doing it. But in their own strength alone, in the night, there's no fruit. But it is Christ who brings the increase. We had a really good conversation about this on Wednesday in our Bible study, and Jonathan brought it up and Deshaun brought it up, so... I'm going to bring it up again. Uh, because we need to be reminded of this. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy chapter 8 looking at Israel. God tells them, I'm going to put you in this land, the land of milk and honey. I'm going to give you vineyards that you didn't plant. I'm going to give you wells that you didn't dig. I'm going to give you fruit. I'm going to give you all of these things. And I'm going to destroy these nations before you. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
uh, verse 17 and 18, this is what he says to them. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. We are no different than Israel. They were no different than Israel. We all need to be reminded. It is so easy to say, look what I did. Look how many fish I brought in on my own. Look what I have done. But they are reminded it is by the power of God that those fish went in the net. It is only by God's power that you can have any wealth or any success. And it is out of His covenant faithfulness, His promise to those who believe that they are able to do anything. And so I just thought it would be a great time to encourage Hunter because I know how he's feeling. I know what he's thinking. I have been there. And I know the temptation to think I have to do more. I have to put this all on my own back and carry it myself. But this is an encouragement. Anyone who's in vocational ministry or you are witnessing to your neighbor, you have to remember that it is by the power of God that you are able to accomplish anything. And in your own efforts, in your own strength, in your own pride, it will come to nothing. When you do that, it takes all the pressure off. Because you realize that even what I have in my net, God has provided for me. And this is how he provides for us. He doesn't need our efforts. He didn't need them to drag the fish in. He could have commanded the fish to get out of the sea and walk to the beach. But he chooses to use them. He chooses to use his people and make us a part of him bringing in the kingdom of God. Amen. Verse 11. So Simon Peter, we haven't heard from Peter in a while. Maybe he's still swimming. So (laughs) Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. you got to love Peter. Jesus says, jump. Peter says, how high? Let me grab this, this, this net and drag everything ashore. Peter, true to form, you got to love it. But what I also love here is this is a real old fisherman here. John says there was this haul of big fish, 153 of them. John's probably 80, 70, 80 when he's writing this. He still remembers how many fish that they pulled ashore. Fishermen, I'm sure everyone in here, you, you know your, your biggest day of fishing, right? My dad tells me every week how many fish he caught. Like, this is, this is a, a real thing. Even John in his old age remembers exactly how many fish he caught. Um, So on the surface, this is the best catch ever. Jesus is the best fisherman of us all. But underneath the surface, there's more going on here. So there's been all kinds of speculations about this this number. And the early church fathers, if you read them, they have some wild ideas. Like um, Augustine made this whole formula about how this is the number for law and grace. And it comes out to 17. And if you add up every number leading to 17, it makes 153. And so he's got this great, you know, algebra problem. And Augustine was just way too smart for his own good. So I will spare you some of the others, but my favorite uh, is from Jerome. Jerome's the the 4th century scholar, Greek and Hebrew scholar, who who wrote the uh, Latin Vulgate, who translated Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And here's the way he describes it is that 153 is the number of types of fish in the sea. And so this represented every tongue, tribe, and nation that the gospel would go out to. 
So I think that's pretty cool. I don't know if that is a fact that there's 153 fish in the Sea of Galilee, but I think he's closest to the words of Jesus. So let's look at Matthew chapter 13 and see what Jesus says about this. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is kingdom of heaven imagery. This is evangelism imagery. A net going out. The gospel will be proclaimed to all nations and it will drag in a lot. A lot of people will stumble into doors like this and they will hear the gospel. But they will separate the good from the trash fish in the last day. Those who are just coming around to see another miracle or to hear or to be patted on the back. This is evangelism imagery of the Word of God going out and bringing in all kinds of every kind. And I think Jerome hits that. So I want to compare this passage in Matthew with the one in in Luke and then see how John helps to complete all of this. So if we remember in Luke, they brought in more fish than they ever had, but the nets began to break. And in Matthew, the good fish separated from the trash fish. But there's no count in either one of them. Both same, one is illustrated by the actions of Jesus and the disciples, one is illustrated in a parable. But now that Christ is risen, the details of John come to life. Go back to John chapter 21. Should keep your finger there. We're going to bounce back and forth a little bit. But look at the detail here. Uh, they hauled in 153 fish, and all there were so, although there were so many, the net was not torn. Why is that detail there? Why is that different? Now that Christ is risen, now that the atonement is complete, now that he has done the work on their behalf for the gospel to go out, the, f- the net will not break. The full number, the elect, the full number of the fish will be brought to the shore. The net will not break. It will hold them all. He will not lose one of them. Now before, it seemed like they brought in more than they ever could and their nets were breaking. Some of those fish would be thrown away, but now that the gospel goes out, none of those fish will be thrown away. None of them will be lost. The net will not break. The full number will be brought on shore to dine with the Master. And that is where we find ourselves in this completed metaphor of evangelism, of the kingdom of God going out and the full number coming in by the work of the apostles. None to be lost, because it is a perfect work of the Savior. And then they were now being commissioned to be fishers of men, and this is what they were to look forward to. Big fish, fullness, fruit in their labors. They were called into the family business. You are now fishers of men. And everyone who follows Christ and his disciple are called, and his, as his disciple are called to be fishers of men. And now we see the reward. He brings the fish in. Verse 12, come and have breakfast. This is such a welcome sight. If you've ever worked through the night, if you've ever worked all day and you were starving, and you come on shore, 
And he says, come and have breakfast. You don't have to work for it. It's already made here in front of you. Your Lord prepares fresh grilled fish on a, on a on charcoal fire as the sun's coming up, looking over this calm, glassy lake. Is there a better breakfast? Amen. And on, on the surface, our Lord cares for our physical needs. And he loves good food. Amen? And there's this, this beautiful picture of him being reunited with them and gives them this feast on the beach. But there's other detail here. Now, none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? Now think about this. We talked about his glorified body, and this is coming where we've got to look at it for a moment. They're eating with him. They come up to him. He welcomes them around this fire. If they can't see by the rising sun, they can certainly see by the fire. They do not recognize him. They dare, they dare not ask, who are you? But they knew. As John Chrysostom said, he was divinely ascertained. Like There's this, this spiritual connection. They understand who he is by his words and his actions, but they do not recognize his face. This is why when people go crazy trying to figure out what Jesus looked like and paint pictures and see his face on toast, it doesn't matter. Who cares? If you know him, you will recognize him. When we don't serve a Lord who, who has to be bound by his human features, and he does have a glorified body, he's one who reveals himself to his children. And even though they did not recognize him by sight, they knew him by faith. Verse 13, Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This is a feast for those who labor in bringing in the catch of the master. He feasts with those. He rewards those who labor unto his kingdom. So there's this, this surface uh, picture here of him just having a meal with them. But if we go deeper, the language that is used in Revelation 19 of those who are good and faithful are brought to a wedding feast. And this is just a glimpse. This is just the appetizer to the feast that is to come. And those who labor will share in the rewards with the master. John gets at this in chapter 4 of his gospel. After speaking to the woman from Samaria, in chapter, 30, or chapter 4, verse 34, he tells them what his food is as we look at this food analogy here. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. There is rejoicing that's going on in this beach. There will be rejoicing with those who see the lost be found, those who are brought onto shore. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Sound familiar? Others have labored, and now you enter into their labor. The apostles are just picking up on the, the uh, prophets who came before them. When we enter into gospel ministry, we're just picking up on the feet of the apostles and those who went before us. We are, are reaping where others have labored, and there is rejoicing for all. And what is that labor? Look at Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 4. Jesus tells another parable about the kingdom. 
Uh, Luke 15, 4 through 7. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Jesus is training them, rejoice in the fruits of your labors. Rejoice as you go out with the gospel and your net catches those who are saved unto eternal life. And how amazing is it that Jesus uses them, uses us who bring nothing to the table, who do nothing on their own, and yet shares in the celebration with us, shares in the feast with us, and we get to celebrate with our Savior. And the reward of the Lord is like a fresh-cooked breakfast by the sea. And if you've ever seen the fruits of gospel ministry, if you've ever seen someone who's dead come to life, if you've ever seen someone who's immature grow into maturity in Christ, if you've ever seen the peace that comes from following the word of the Lord and seeing the reward, it is like a fresh breakfast by the sea with the sun rising. Amen? So as we conclude this morning, just remember a couple things. What is important to consider is that Peter and these other fishermen who are so experienced in their lives, they are generational fishermen. They've been, they've been fishing as long as their family can remember. You do, in that culture, you did what your father and your grandfather did, and they've been fishing. But with all their knowledge and all their experience, with all their combined fisherman prowess, their efforts came to nothing. But with the word of the Lord directing them, they were successful and they were rewarded. They were powerless on their own without the resurrected Lord. And I don't mean to burst your bubbles, but you were powerless on your own without the resurrected Lord. As much ability as you think you have or think you don't have, it does not matter. It does matter who you follow and who you are listening to and whose word directs you. Because whether you place too much emphasis on yourself and your abilities or think that you don't have any, God put his treasure in these jars of clay so that he gets the glory because it is his power who does it, that does it. And so as I said earlier, this takes the pressure off of us. Just like these fishermen, they fished by faith. We are to go out by faith and trust him. Because when you share what Christ has done, it is not your ability or, or power or your, your skill in threading together a sentence. And even what you think you accomplish, Christ has given you the provision. He has given you the ability. And He brings the increase. You may plant, you may water, but it is Him who brings the increase. And so it takes the pressure off of us. You do not have to succeed because the success is with Him. You only have to obey. Follow his word, listen to his word, and be a part of your father's business, bringing in the lost sheep, bringing in the catch. And lastly, don't do it for the reward of men. You don't have to seek the reward of men. Jesus showed his disciples, and he has promised us that our reward will be great in heaven. It's not great before the eyes of men. The reward of our God is like a delicious breakfast by the water watching the sunrise. Let's pray. What a beautiful picture. Lord, I pray 
this morning that everyone who knows you would know that joy. That joy of being about your business, of laboring for the kingdom of God and looking to you for our sweet reward. That we would know the feeling of what it means to dine with the Master. The peace that we feel over glassy seas. The fulfillment we, we, we feel when He feeds and nourishes us. That we look to Him for our power and our ability and our reward. That He would receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. For those here this morning who do not know You, there's nothing they can do apart from You. Apart from you, they are in eternal darkness. It is like fishing at night and never catching anything. Lord, I pray that you open their eyes. I pray that you become the bright morning star in their life. That the sun would raise on their souls and that you would reveal yourself to them. That they would know and love you. And they would join in the celebration of the saints who anticipate your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.